to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to lead us. Show us what you want us to see from all of this. And we ask you, if anybody's coming, that you bring them safely in through the, through the storm. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 34. We've had Manasseh, who started out bad, then repented and became a pretty good king. His son Ammon only reigned for two years, and he was a bad king. And now we have Ammon's uh, son, Josiah. Now, the name Josiah means when God heals. So he's got a really good name because he is going to bring healing to the people of Israel. So starting at verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after God, the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. And they broke down the altars of Baalim in his presence and the images which were on high above them. He cut down the groves, he cut down and the groves and the carved images and the molten images he broke into pieces and made dust on them and strew, and strew them all over the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. He burnt the bones of the priests upon the, their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so did he in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon and even unto Naphtali with their mattocks round about. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cast and cut down the idols throughout all the land of Egypt, he returned to Jerusalem. So we're going to look at this. This sounds very much like what Hezekiah did when he first started. And uh, Hezekiah was a little bit older than, <laughs> than Josiah. But Josiah began to reign at eight years old. Now, I don't know how much reigning an eight-year-old does. I'm sure a regent was the one who did all the main running of it at that point. But, and it says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord as and walked in the ways of David, his father. And I love this. He's following after David. David's heart was turned to God. And it says he declined or turned neither to the right hand nor to the left. So when, when he would follow God, he continued to follow God. He did not deviate his path. Now, this is not a testimony that I have for myself that I've perfect, perfectly not deviated my path over the 50-some years that I've walked with God. But his testimony is he did not turn right or left. He followed God completely. Then it says, in the eighth year of his reign, so this means he's 16 years old. While he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. So at 16 years old, he decided it was time to seek after God. Now, we're going to find out at this point in time that the word of God has been lost. They do not have the, old, they do not have the law. They do not have the rules. What he is learning at age 16 is the traditions of what's going on. All right. So he's following the traditions of the Jewish people at this time, trying to look at their history, trying to find out how do I follow God? How do I seek after God to uh, serve him? So his heart really is turned to God. And it's, he's only 16 years old, which is great. He's, he's going to lead his people by trying to find out. He's going to go into his family history and find out what's been done right, what's been done wrong trying to look past his, his father Ammon, going back and looking at Manasseh and, and Hezekiah and other great kings, looking at what are the traditions. And remember, remember what I said, we're going to find out they did not have the law of God at this point in time. It's been lost. And so this is where he is at. At 16 years old, he's going, I want to obey God. And at this point, he's going to do it to the best of his ability following tradition. And so this is where he's at. And then at age, at, in the 12th year of, year of him, which is age 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem and the high places. He probably heard how his father, his 
is grand, a great-grandfather had got rid of all the idols and, you know, his history. Maybe he's gotten into a little bit of the Ten Commandments that they're not supposed to have idols. And so 20 years old, he starts destroying idols. And this is very interesting. It starts out in Judah in Jerusalem, gets rid of the high places, the groves, which we talked about those being the Astoroth poles, carved images, and molten images. So he just starts breaking down any idol out there. He goes and he destroys the totem poles, the Astoros poles, the uh, melted down, the stone ones, whatever it is he finds, he breaks them down. In verse 4 it says, he broke down the altars of Baal, or Baalim, which are the plural the plural and the female uh, definition of, of that. So he's tearing down those altars and images, and he cut down the groves, and he broke them in pieces, and made them in dust, and he and he strew or scattered them over the graves of those that had sacrificed unto them. That's kind of an interesting thing. Why is he doing this? He is desecrating their, their, their uh, resting place. You wanted to worship your gods? Let me show you that your gods are nothing and we're going to just scatter their remains over your, over your graves. So this is a kind of superstition, but again, it shows us where he's at right now. He is following the traditions, the idea that graves could be desecrated. That the, the you know he's following the ideas, the the added rabbinical laws and, and regulations on it because he does not know the word of God. So he is just looking at uh, yes, I need to get rid of these idols. That's, they're bad. Then when I destroy them, I'm going to sprinkle it all over the you know the pieces all over the the graves and desecrate their graves so that they won't have peace. He's not understanding what the Word of God says about uh, death. So he's doing all of this going in. Um, and then it says, And he burnt the bones of the priest upon their altars and, and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So he went out, dug up the priest for these idols, burned, them, burned their bodies, again, desecrating them, and then put those ashes all over the, the altars for those gods. So again, he's living right now full bore tradition. And you know, we can look at this. This isn't something just that the Jews did during the dark ages when Catholicism ruled and the Bible was not brought out to people. People lived under these traditions. And you, would, you read some of these things and some of the things they believed were weird. You know, when you look at them because they were so steeped in tradition, they did not follow God's word. And this is where you would hear people say, you know, and we even hear it to this day. The good book says. The Bible says. And you're going, well, nowhere in my Bible does it say that. You know, good book says cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, yes, being clean is really good, but it is not in the Bible that it is next to godliness. You know, the, the big one that America brought up, God helps those who help themselves. You know, and, they, and there were people that literally believed that that was in the Bible. And still to this day, people believe that that's in the Bible, even though it is exactly contrary to what the Bible says. God helps those who can't help themselves. Even though that's not one of the verses, it is very true. When we recognize that we cannot do anything, he steps in and delivers. So these are where he's at right now. He's doing good deeds for the right reasons, even though they're not necessarily the right ways. But he is trying to follow the traditions that he understands and that he knows. And then it says, and he, he also did in verse 6, he did it in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, even to Naphtali, with their mattocks around about them. And mattocks is a knife or a sword or a cutting, cutting utensil. So he says, not only did he do Jerusalem and Judah, that would be Judah and Benjamin, because it's the tribe, he also went north, just like, just like Hezekiah did. He went into the north part, which, which are supposed to have Jewish people in them. And he says, we're going to cleanse all the idols out of the north part. Even though the north part had been conquered by Assyria and then conquered by Babylon, he, he's taken and saying, these are our tribes. These are our land. I'm going to cleanse out these idols out of our land. And it's kind of an interesting thing because this is still what's going on today. 
Israel says this is our land, all the rest of the people say it's not our land, and yet Israel puts their mark upon their land. And this is what uh, Josiah is doing. He says, all right, all this land God gave to us, we're going to go cleanse it. We're going to cleanse it. And if you look at your maps of Israel, you'll see these tribes just go right one right after the other to the north. And you know, this is kind of an interesting place. He's, he's only 20 years old, but he's kind of pushed the edges. You know, any one of these monarchs might be a little upset that he's in their, what they think of as their territory, destroying idols. All right. Being that, well, being that, well, didn't matter whether he was 100 years old, he's in somebody else's, you know, quote unquote territory and destroying their idols. And, you know, that would be like uh, us going into Canada and saying, we're going to destroy, you know, you know, destroy something. And they're going to look at us like, who, what right do you have to do this? And, or let's make it Mexico, especially in the Southwest where Mexico used to have sway. But we're going to go there. We still think of it as our territory. So we're going to go in there and we're going to wipe out. Uh, America's marks, right? And so this is what Josiah is doing. He's going in these these areas and cleaning out all the idols. Now the people apparently are not too opposed to it. They're mostly Jews up there, but he is going in and he is wiping out the idols in those areas as well. And again, this is what his grand his great grandfather. Uh, Hezekiah did. He went up, if you remember, he went up into the north country and he wiped out the idols. So this isn't the first time it's happened. Uh, but he goes up there and then says, verse 7, And when he had broken down the idols and the groves and had beaten the graven images into powder and cut down the idols throughout all of the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now I kind of wonder how long did it take him to get rid of all the idols in all of the areas around about him Um, and I think that the next verse is really going to tell us a little bit because it's going to say now in his 18th year so 26 when he's 26 years old so I think it took most of him six years to run all through Israel and destroy idol Jerusalem Judea uh, Jerusalem Judah Benjamin and all those places probably took him about six years to go out and it makes it sound like he went out and personally helped do this, going out all over the place. I'm sure his army did too, but you know he went everywhere with his army, his, his spies and everything, and said, we're going to destroy every idol we find, every totem pole we find, every, every altar we find, we're going to destroy it, we're going to desecrate it, and make a mockery out of these gods. And he's doing all this, again, out of the tradition that he's following. Like I said, he probably went in, had the books read about his, great, great, his great-grandfather, saw what he did and said, okay, I'll, he was a good king, we're going to duplicate what he did. Maybe took what traditions he knew of David and, and applied them. But again, remember, he is not reading the word of God. He's trying to seek God. And he's being taught traditions because the word of God has been lost. They don't have his word, so all he has is tradition to build upon. And yet what little he knows, he's, he's acting upon. He's acting on what he is being taught by the Levites, by the priests, whoever it is that's giving him his information. He's acting on what he, is, what he has learned. Verse 18, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joha, the son of Moahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered in the lands of Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel, and of all Judah and Benjamin and they returned to Jerusalem and they put it in the hand of the workmen that had the oversight of the house of the Lord and they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house even to the artifers and the builders gave it they to buy hewn stone and timber 
of, for couplings and the floor of houses, which the king of Judah had, the kings of Judah had destroyed. And the men did work faithfully, and the overseers of them were Jathoth and Obadiah, the Levites, the sons of Marari and Zechariah and Meshulam, and the sons of the, of the Kohites, to set it forward, and the other of the Levites, all that could skill with instruments of music. Also they were over the bearers of the burdens and the overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service. And the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters. So here's his work. While he was out, and this was not mentioned before, while he was out, the Levites were collecting the offerings that were supposed to have been coming in. Now, I don't know how they did this. I don't know if they forced them or not. You know, they've destroyed the idols and said, now, now it's time to give your offerings to God or give your tithes to God. We don't know exactly how that worked. I don't know if it was completely free will offering at this point or a little bit of pressed free will. But he says they went out and they went out to repair it and they gave the money that they had brought for, into the house of the Lord which the Levites had kept the door, had gathered in of the hand of the Manasseh, Ephraim, and all the remnant of Israel. So they had gone about as they were destroying idols, collecting offerings. Now, I know history, and it doesn't really say this, but I have a feeling these offerings weren't 100% free will. We, we're going to follow God. God says to give his money, give your, you know, give your tithes. It was probably more along the lines that it was. It doesn't say so. Josiah is trying to honor God, and he is, we're going to read through here, he basically says, this is what we're going to do, people. He didn't give them an opportunity to want to get rid of their idols, he just did it. He did not give them probably the opportunity to give their tithes and offerings, he just said, this is what you're supposed to do, give them. And they said they put this money in the hands of the workmen that had oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen that wrought in the house of the Lord to repair and amend or improve the house of the temple. So he did just what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah, remember when Hezekiah became, they had made the temple a junkyard. It took them six months to clean all the garbage out of the temple. He comes along and says, okay, now in two years, you know, his father had messed up the temple. And he says, we're going to repair it. We're going to improve it. We're going to fix it up. And so he takes all of this money, gives it to the workmen to, to build and improve. So as he's going out, he gives it to them and says even to the artifers, the builders, they, they gave the, the, so they could buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses that the kings of Judah had destroyed. So the floors had been destroyed, the, the hinges, everything has been destroyed over this period of time through neglect probably more than anything else. If you have a wooden floor and you neglect your wooden floor, it doesn't take long for it to be worn down and, and filled with insects and termites and rot and everything. And so they did not take care of this floor and they did not take care of the doors Anything that was wooden was rotted and falling apart. So he says, we're going to fix all of this. And I don't know how stone gets broken down, but apparently stone can be broken down. We see it in the picture of the ancient buildings, you know, that took hundreds of years for them to really fall apart. But earthquakes and, and damage can tear apart rock, uh, can tear out the mortar from it. So he's building these new buildings. He's rebuilding and it says the men, in verse 12, the men did the work faithfully. They gave them the money and they worked faithfully, strongly. They worked with all their heart. Now, when the king wants it, I'm sure they got, got good, good workers and they worked very diligently. They, they were being paid for their work. And then it gives us this list of people that were overseeing them and the Levites. And then in the very end of 12, it says, and the Levites that were skillful with music started playing and serving God again. This has been their big big thing all along. Remember in the original temple there was nothing about music being played 
But by the time David came along, he was a musician, and he instituted music, you know, told Solomon to put musicians in there 24-7, playing music, singing songs to God, so no matter when you went into the temple, you heard praises to God. And so here the Levites are following, and again, remember, they're looking at tradition right now. They're not looking at what has always happened. They're looking at tradition. Verse 14, And when they had brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hekiah the priest found a book of the law of, of the Lord given to him by Moses. And Hekiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hekiah delivered the book to Shaphan, and Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to their servants they do. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hands of the overseers and the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So I want to stop there (laughs) because the reaction is going to be really beautiful. So they're cleaning up the temple. They're organizing it, some room. They go into, uh, the money was there, and then Hilkiah, says Hilkiah the priest, found the law. It's been there in the temple, lost. Apparently he knew what it was real quick. I mean, it was in the scrolls, probably covered, dedicated, in a cupboard somewhere. Who knows what it was? But remember, his father different didn't read it probably. Manasseh probably didn't, even though he was turning things around, probably didn't care about it. The last one to have read the law that we know of was Hezekiah. So he finds the book of the law. You know, and I have a feeling that he has the same reaction to it as uh, Martin Luther did when he read, uh, Luther read it when, when he came to it. And all of a sudden he goes, this is not the traditions that I've been taught. These are not what I have been told that the Bible says. And this is what Hilkiah probably thinks when he's looking at it. And he sends it to the king, and the king is really going to react. Um, So the high priest gives it to Shaphan, and Shaphan carries it back to the king. And, you know, I kind of find it very interesting because when he goes back, he says, you know, his report all that has been committed to your servants are doing. They're rebuilding the temple. They're cleaning, they're cleaning things up. They're rebuilding it. All right. They have gathered together the money that was found in the house, and they have delivered it into the hands of the overseers and to the workmen. What I see here, this is a worldly man giving a worldly report. You ask for the temple to be built here, it's being built. He does not even realize that what he holds in his hands is more valuable than the temple. He does not understand that. And it's kind of like, uh, this is just an oversight, you know, this is just a, just a side. And then he goes, uh, oh, and by the way, Hokiah the priest has given me a book. You know, he's given me a book. You know, you're, the temple's being rebuilt. Everything's going on. Everything you commanded is being done. And the high priest gave me a book. I have no clue what this book is, but... Uh, he says it's the law of the Lord given to Moses, but uh, I don't know really what it's about. And then in that last line in 18, and he read it before the king. He read the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are being read to King Josiah. Probably for the very first time that he's ever heard the law of God being read. So verse 19, and it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the law that he rent his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah and Ahikam the son of Japhan and Abdon the son of Micah and Shaphan the scribe and Asiah the servant of the king saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left of Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the, Lord, of, of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that was written in this book. 
This is somebody who's been seeking God. You know, he's 26 when this started. I don't know how far into this, but let's say he's still 26. At 16, he was seeking God to the best of his knowledge, the best of his ability. And all of a sudden, the book of the law of God comes in. Can you remember the very first time the word of God hit you and you started to understand it? You know, and I've heard this over and over from people before they get saved. Well, I tried to read the Bible and it just didn't make sense. Then we get saved and the Holy Spirit starts talking to us and all of a sudden we realize all the laws that we have not kept, all the laws that we have not obeyed, and how much we have disobeyed God. This is what Josiah sees all of a sudden. It's read to him, and when he had heard the words, and I don't know if they got through the whole book of the law, he tore his garments. He was so sad and so broken at what he had heard. All of a sudden, even with all of his zealousness to destroy the idols and destroy the altars and all the things, all of a sudden he heard the law and realized we're not even close to what God wants us to do. He's probably even thinking, I'm not even close to what God wants me to do. You know, I thought I was doing everything for God. I thought I was being good. And all of a sudden he hears the 613 laws that God told him to obey. And he's looking at, we're in trouble. We are in trouble because we have not obeyed God. Especially when you get to Deuteronomy and it says, This day I set before you blessing and cursing. Choose you this day who you, will, who you are going to obey. You know, blessings by obedience and curses by disobedience. That's how Deuteronomy ends. And all of a sudden he's looking and he's hearing all of this stuff and saying, God put a choice before us to follow him and obey him or not obey him. And he thinks about all the altars he's destroyed. Thinks of all the sin, the adultery, the fornication, the, the lying, the cheating, the Sabbaths that are being broken. And he starts realizing they are not obeying God's laws. Tears his garments. And then he says, he grabs a whole bunch of people, great, great leaders, and he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of this book that are found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that is written in the book. What is he saying? God is out to destroy us. All this good that I have done is not enough. I have destroyed idols, but how much other sin? He's just starting to really begin to understand the level of sin in his heart and in the people. And this is what the law of God is designed to do. It is designed to teach us that we cannot live up to God's standards. All, it's really all it's for. Because no matter how much we want to obey God, we cannot fully obey God. And that's what the law teaches us. And Josiah is sitting there, probably pretty pale, saying, I've done the best I could with all these traditions, but now, God, we, de we deserve punishment. We as a nation deserve punishment, and he's starting to realize that even he deserves punishment. So what does he say? He says, go find somebody that's a prophet. I want to know, is God going to destroy our land? Because here, he's been feeling pretty good about himself. He's rebuilding the temple, which has been the center of all religious activity. He has gotten rid of the idols. He's really seeking after God. He's been thinking he's doing everything that God wants him to do. And now he hears God's word and says, I am not pure. My people are not pure. And for generations, we have not been pure. So he's looking at, God said he's going to destroy us. All right, that's how Deuteronomy ends. If you don't keep these words of the law, you're going to be destroyed. I set before you a blessing and curse. Obey and you're okay and disobey, you're going to be cursed. This is what he hears. And he is now very concerned. He has a tender heart toward God. 
didn't fully understand what he was getting into, but he has a tender heart before God. Verse 22, And Hilkiah and, and they that the king had appointed unto Hudah the pro, went to Hudah the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Tikvah, the son of Hazra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spoke with her to the effect, to that effect, and she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. All right, this is a really sad start on this prophecy. All right, I'm going to stop there before we get to the good part. So she says to them, tell him, that, tell him who said to you that all those curses that are said are coming are going to fall. They're going to fall. This is, if it had stopped there, this was Josiah's worst nightmare. We've been so disobedient and God is a God of wrath and not a God of grace. We're going to be destroyed. And that's what she starts out with. He says, I will bring evil upon this place, even all the curses that are read in the book that, has been, that have been read before Josiah. Why? Because they have forsaken me. They have abandoned me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be poured upon this place and shall not be quenched. When God's grace and mercy reaches a breaking point, his wrath pours out and nothing stops it. And this is, if it had stopped here, Josiah probably would have had a heart attack. You know, I knew I was in trouble when that book was found and read to me. Uh, but he goes on, verse 26. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall you say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you did humble yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against the inhabitants thereof and humbled yourself before me and did rent your clothes and weep before me, I have heard you, says the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place and upon the inhabitants of, this, of the same. So they brought the king word again. So the good news. Bad news, king. Everything that you read is true. I'm going to, I am going to pour my wrath upon this place for all their disobedience. Good news, king. Because of your attitude, one man saves the nation for a period of time. One man. And it says, um, because your heart is tender, soft, penitent, you immediately repented and had sorrow. Because of that, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against the inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you rent your garments and wept, I have even heard you also. And so this is the reaction. He hears God's word, is immediately under condemnation, and humbles himself before God. Now, his grandfather did the same thing but it took his grandfather going into captivity before he humbled himself he hears the word of God and he goes this is trouble and he's looking around and going we deserve nothing from God and yet he repents and says God we're in trouble I'm turning to you and he throws himself on the mercy of God. Now remember, he's king. He understands this idea. You know, I plead mercy from the court. 
That's exactly what he's doing. He went to God and basically saying, God, I plead mercy. I did not know that we were doing wrong. I did not know how bad things were gotten. Please give me mercy and let me try to get things better. And he gets the message. Now, this is a mixed message. He goes, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, but I am bringing judgment. Now, this has been kind of funny because you read through some of these kings, you know, there were kings that literally said, okay, as long as it's not in my lifetime, it's going to follow my son, great. I don't understand that mentality. <laughs> you know, I think there's a little bit of sadness in him. There's happiness, okay, I'm going to, you know, you're not going to do it in my lifetime. I think he's also hoping that he can get his son raised so that it doesn't happen in his son's lifetime. And he, because there's no promise in this one that it's going to happen in anybody's particular lifetime. It's just, it's going to happen. All right, I am bringing this, but because of your reaction, it won't be in your lifetime. What a blessing to hear. What a blessing to, to see from it that because I am honoring God, I'm not going to see the devastation upon the people. And note, it's one man. It doesn't say anybody else humbled themselves when they heard this word of God. Now, maybe there were some duplicate, I don't know, but it said the king humbled himself. He tore his garments. There is no picture. We don't even see that, the, that Hilkiah re repented for the evil that was going on. Or Shaphan, just the king, said, this is terrible. Now, the king has a lot of power and a lot of authority. But, and so God says, because of what you did, because you humbled yourself, I will not bring the judgment, but the judgment will come. The promise was that when you disobeyed, it will come, and I am going to just delay it. How many times does God delay trials in our, in our lives because of his mercy and his grace when we humble ourselves? I am glad that God does not seek perfect people because I'd be in trouble and every single person I know would be in trouble. Seems how the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We would all be in trouble if God sought perfect people. But he does seek those that are humble and repentant and seeking him to say, God, I have sinned. I have sinned. And in, his, in Josiah's case, he's also saying, my people have sinned. And I think he's at the point where he's really worried. Before, when he sends these guys, he's worried. He goes, I can repent and I can follow God, but I've got an entire nation that isn't following God. They don't know his word. His word hadn't been preached and taught to them since Hezekiah's day. So, you know, we're looking at some 50-some years that the word of God has not been taught to the people. And he is coming in and all of a sudden realizing, my people are in trouble. My nation is in trouble. God has promised curses upon us for our behavior. And he just says, I need repentance. And he sends these people and he gets a good message from the prophetess. God says, I am going to bring this, but it won't be in your lifetime. And it says, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil that I will bring against this place upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the word to the king. This is good news to the king. At least for one generation, he has a chance to turn the heart of his people to God. This is quite a task that he's looking to do. First, he's going to have to turn the heart of all of his leadership to God. But he has one generation to try to turn people to God and get them taught the word of God. Pretty much what Hezekiah did, and Hezekiah failed. Even though he sent the Levites out throughout the land to teach God's word. By the time his son comes along, his son just turned, him, turned everything around and at the end of his life repented and then Ammon came along and tore everything back down again and now Josiah is trying one more time. Do we see the faithfulness of God? God kept giving him a king to try to turn their heart to him. 
and the king would work diligently. But it has been said famously, you can't legislate morality, and it is true, I cannot, you cannot legislate morality. But you can make laws to try to get people to think morally and behave morally. And Hezekiah did not fully get people to be moral, even though he made all kinds of laws to follow God. We're going to see that Josiah is going to do all kinds of things to get people to follow God, but ultimately their heart does not fully turn. And one man saves a nation for a generation. One man. Now, I'm sure there were other people praying and everything, but you know, in our story, one man humbles himself. And God says, okay, at least for one generation, I'm not destroying this land. You will have peace. You will have comfort. And by the way, Josiah, you are going to die and be buried with your fathers here in Jerusalem. Good news. Josiah's happy. Probably a little scared, too, because he's got one, he's got his lifetime to get people's hearts totally turned to God. And we're going to see what he tries to do. Verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which were written in the book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of the Lord and the, of the God their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertained to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from the following of the Lord, the God of their fathers. So what did King do? He called an assembly. Starts out and he goes, okay, all my leaders get here to the temple. And, you know, it didn't stop there. It says, and all the men of Judah and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, came to this meeting. That's quite a crowd. I don't know how big Jerusalem was, how, how big Israel was at that time. They're field, fielding armies of 100, 100, you know, 200, 300,000. So there's a lot of people there. He gets them in Jerusalem and some place, that's, that's several hundred thousand people in a place where they can hear God's word being read. And he spends the time reading the words of the book to them. Basically, he wants them to know how sinful they are. It impacted him. He wants them to know what it is that God wants them to do. And it says, and he caused, and it says, that, excuse me, in verse 31, and the king stood in his place, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which were written in the book. This is basically a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this is, you know, boy, when he, when he got the word of God into him, he really got the word of God into him. Because that's his covenant. We're going we're gonna to obey God the way God said to love him. And this was his word. And he says, I am going to follow God in front of all the men of Israel with all my heart and my strength. And then it says in verse 34, And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. This is reminiscent of exactly what happened in Deuteronomy. Just before they went into the land of Egypt, they were in a valley, and they had priests on both sides calling out the, the evil and the, the, the curses and the blessings. And, they, and all the people said, we will obey God. But they kept saying they were going to obey God, even though they never did. 
They did it at Sinai. Whatever he says, we'll obey. And they never obeyed. In the valley there, they said, we will obey God. Here, they're going to say, we will obey God. We're going to honor God. We're going to obey God. And they somewhat do. Because in verse 33, it says, And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel. So everywhere. Okay, remember, he's already taken the idols, the altars. Now he's looking for anything else that's an abomination to God. Now what that defines, I don't know. But he says he went to all the places where Israel was and started destroying anything that wasn't godly. Uh, God said, don't no graven images. He probably wiped out statues. Who knows all of what he wiped out? He wipes out anything that was against God. In all of Israel, all those lands owned by other, other kings. A little bit of both. He read the word of God and God said to do this, so he's acting on it. He's acting on the word of God. Uh, and he's acting on the fact that Israel owns all those areas that these other kings had conquered. But, you know, I think he was ready to go to war. If he needed to, he was ready to go to war. These, these are our lands. They've got, a, they've got idols and abominations to them. We're going to destroy it. And I think he didn't care at that point. Uh, basically, they still have the problem with the Palestinians. Um, they have the problem with the Dome of the Rock. They're going to need some strong leader to, to do something there. I think they're going to split the mountain and, you know, with some kind of wall and put a Dome of the Rock on one side and the temple on the other side. Because we're told in the Old Testament that the prophet was told to measure the land, but don't measure the, the uh, court of the Gentiles because it was given to Gentiles. And I think that's where the court of the the Dome of the Rock stands. So I think that's going to be their answer. They don't have to blow it up and cause a war. But if it had been Josiah and the Dome of the Rock was there, it had been gone. <laughs> says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow this uh, because that's what he was at. He was on fire for God. He goes, I'm ready to go to war. He's, like I said, it said, in all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel. So he's going through Assyria and, and Damascus and and Babylon's territories, and he's wiping out anything that was an idol and all of their territories. He's kind of making an act of war. Now, none of them respond you know, as if it was a war, mostly because they know these Israelites are crazy, but they, they all worship one God you know, when, they're, when they're doing what they're supposed to. So they don't, they don't bring a war, but he's really doing something that could cause a war. Anything can happen. If they get a good, great enough leader and re repent. And even in our country, if we had a great enough revival and repentance happened, there would be a lot of stuff that would be taken out of this country and, and changed. Uh, our entertainment industry, uh, you know, a, a lot of bars and everything would be taken out and closed because of going against God. So now will we see that kind of revival? I don't know. Uh, we saw those kind of revivals under various places when Billy Sunday would preach in a town the bars would close usually because he was so powerful a preacher and one of his big messages was temperance don't don't drink and thousands and thousands of people would come forward to to get saved and to quit drinking and the bars would close because there was nobody to drink uh, and then brothels would close because he would preach against uh, fornication you know so and during the Great Awakening, these same things happened. So is it possible? Yes. Uh, we don't know. But it is possible that something like this could happen again. Then it says, And he made all that was present in Israel serve, even to serve the Lord their God. Now this is the part I'm not quite sure how he gets people in Israel to serve. These are the northern tribes. They're not really recognizing him as king in the first place. He says, you are going to serve God. And he may read portions of the word to, you know, God's word to them that you're in trouble. This is what's coming. But he forced them to do right. By law, by military force, by police. Who knows how he did it? But he says he forced them. He made them all. And all the days, all his days, 
They've departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. This is a lot of force of will to say you are going to obey God. We're not allowing idols. We're not allowing these worship of other idols. Now, I'm sure there are people that disobeyed and, and didn't live according to his will, but he did not sanction anything. He took out the temples. He took out the altars. He took out the all, all the stuff. And the people did not dare to openly disobey God. And it says, for all of his days, they departed not from following God. He probably sent the Levites out to teach, just like his, his granddad did, sending people out to teach the word of God. And he really makes a great revival for the people. It's a wonderful time. And we're going to see part of his revival in the next chapter. But what a wonderful leader Josiah is. He's one of their great kings. You got David, Solomon, Hezekiah, and Josiah as their great kings that truly sought after God uh, and really tried to turn the country around and rescue it. And we're going to find out he's one of the last, you know, there's only another four kings after him, and they come in rapid succession as, as, as God brings destruction upon the land. When he dies, they turn around quickly to be disobedient. So, really big problem on this. So, Lord, we ask you to bless this as we go forward. Lord, teach us to seek you in all that we do. Lord, help us to look to you, to serve you in all that we do. Give us the desire of our heart to, to, to talk to people about you. Put people in our paths and give us eyes to see when they get there. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.